Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb, coming at you, as always, from Eureka, California, joined by Michael O'Neill in Syracuse, New York. Howdy, Michael. Hey, David. So uh, thanks so much, Michael, for a phenomenal uh, group of sessions you did at Left Forum. I want to encourage folks to search those out. Uh, Michael, Gory Matera, myself uh, did several different uh, workshops at Left Forum, and that's always a great place uh, to learn and engage folks in strategy and theory. Uh, and on this program, I am very pleased to be inviting Jonathan Martin into this conversation. Jonathan is a professor of sociology at Framingham State University in Massachusetts, and he is also a, the editor of and contributor to what I consider to be really a seminal book on third parties called Empowering Progressive Third Parties in the United States. There's also a Facebook page dedicated to continuing that discourse and conversation. I've learned a lot from Jonathan, and I'm happy to welcome you onto a Greenway Forward, Jonathan Martin. Thank you. Great to be here. So, uh, Jonathan, like you are both the editor of and the contributor to uh, that book, and I really do think it's a seminal uh, piece on really thinking about what third parties can do and so forth. So I would like to give you an opportunity to open up and introduce yourself in a little more context to our audience. Who are you? Why do you do what you do? Well, I've been interested in progressive third party politics for a long time and even longer, longer than that, uh, progressive politics. And it was sometime in the 1990s that I started to realize that in order to advance progressive politics, that could not be done within the two-party system. And I started to think about, study, um, get involved in progressive third parties and advancing them. By the late 1990s, I was involved in the Green Party and uh, uh, Ralph Nader's uh, rising campaign and uh, stayed with the Green Party uh, through the 2000s, actually up until a couple of years ago. I'm still sympathetic to and I support what the Green Party is doing. I'm active in a slightly different project that is oriented towards um, trying to develop a, another progressive third party um, through a political action committee. It's called the uh, Progressive Party Organizing Fund. Um, I can talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, but my activism in the Green Party was for a little while in Connecticut and for a long time in Massachusetts. I still follow what the Green Party does, and uh, I support what it's trying to do. So, uh, Jonathan, uh, well, you said a lot in a very short introduction. Uh, I want to remind viewers, if you are watching us on Facebook, you can join the conversation by dropping a comment uh, or a question into the comment section Michael O'Neill will be scanning those uh, and feeding them to me and Jonathan. In addition, I want to ask you if you are watching us live on Facebook or just watching us at any moment on Facebook, remember to share this program on your own Facebook page and any page that you manage. We're continuing to grow this audience. We're continuing to grow the movement for progressive politics, and we're doing it with your help. If you're listening to us on an audio feed, uh, a podcast that you can get in any place, remember to share this podcast with family, friends, your own email list, or other platforms. Jonathan, you specifically talked uh, about coming to the conclusion that if there was going to be 
genuine progressive movement, it's going to have to happen outside the two-party uh, system. I want you to go a little deeper and explain why did you come to that conclusion? Well, I mentioned the 1990s, and that was the point where the Democratic Party was moving to the center towards the right, uh, embracing what is known as neoliberalism, a corporate agenda, more openly. Um, and it was frustrating to someone like myself, who was interested in moving towards a society that uh, is uh, with more equality, uh, that is environmentally more healthy, uh, with more social justice. And it was obvious that the Democratic Party was not doing that. It's still not doing it, even though sometimes it uh, has the appearance of doing so. And so uh, it was obvious at that point that something uh, outside of the two-party system was needed. That's still the case, and I anticipate it will continue to be for the rest of my life. So you've really at, uh, begun to answer the question that I wanted to pose to you is, why do you study alternative political parties? Because to be clear, I literally call them alternative political parties instead of just third parties, because I believe, and Michael believes, in genuine multi-party democracy, proportional representation, so that we genuinely build a pluralistic society. But uh, why do you study alternative uh, parties, and what role have they played historically, and what do you think they can accomplish today, given our voting system? Well, if you look at parties that are more like the kind of uh, alternative party, as you put it, that I would like to see in the United States. In other advanced industrial societies, they have played a critical role in um, creating a much stronger welfare state than we have here, in creating more regulations on business, on reducing inequality. They're not perfect. They've got their problems. I would like to see things go even further than they've gone. But um, you know that suggests that if we had a potent party like that here, uh, we could really change our society to make it a lot more humanistic. Uh, now, in past generations in the United States, we have had more powerful progressive third parties, and they uh, were effective in pressuring the government to implement a variety of really important uh, progressive reforms. Um, I can read a list of those, if you like, right from the book. Would that be helpful? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so I'm just going to... Um, Read this list. So we're talking, I'm talking about the populists and socialists in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And they had enough um, power in some localities. I'm reading a quote from the book and leverage at higher levels and public support in general to help bring about key progressive reforms that they originally proposed. Such nationwide advances included the abolition of child labor, limitation of work hours, establishment of minimum wages and graduated income taxes, broadening of access to public education, expansion of suffrage to previously excluded groups, institution of direct election of U.S. senators, use of public referenda, and a variety of other changes beneficial to low and moderate income people. So um, that uh, we have that history of those parties being effective on a national scale, and we do have third parties today, progressive third parties that have been effective in localities. I'm thinking about uh, Socialist Alternative in Seattle. Uh, they elected a uh, city council member, Shama Sawant, and she really played a critical role in getting the first $15 an hour minimum wage passed, which is now spread to other parts of the country. 
she exerted that leverage and pressure, just one person on a city council, that, uh, of course, there was a movement too, but that uh, really helped spark that movement and, uh, and bring that about. In Richmond, California, there was a green mayor, Gail McLaughlin, um, from about 2007 to 2014, and she implemented a lot of uh, progressive reforms in her city, uh, which included uh, increased taxes on Chevron, the major company in town, uh, new environmental regulations, um, expansion of public facilities, uh, creation of a um, of a program uh, uh, involving ex-convicts uh, and people in prison to kind of uh, reform the criminal justice system locally. Uh, reform of policing. There's a long list of, of things that she accomplished as the Green Mayor. Um, and the Vermont Progressive Party, uh, they've actually been able to push forward a number of different progressive initiatives with uh, you know, a handful of people in the legislature, and now they have a lieutenant governor. Um, and so there are examples today of progressive third parties having a disproportionate impact on policy um, by just gaining uh, one seat, a few seats, or a handful of seats in a locality or a state. Uh, so we could do, if we were able to do more of that, um, if these parties started to gain more power, they would start to have a lot more influence and uh, that, that could really make a difference. Even now, just thank you for that incredible list. The one thing that I do, if I can be so bold, is to remind you and uh, our audience that the abolition of slavery itself came about as a result of a uh, third party. And something worth noting is that the third party formation of the Republican Party was actually preceded by the Liberty Party and the Free Soil Party. In other words, precursors or prefigurative efforts. So one of the things that I remind myself and others is you really don't know exactly where you're going to end up uh, but one thing we do know is that if you don't make demands, you cannot actually make systemic changes. Uh, and I'm wondering, you've mentioned socialist alternative. Uh, are you, and we know, of course, the Green Party, there's over a quarter million registered Greens. We've elected literally a thousand people in the course of the last uh, decade or so. There are currently several hundred people elected mostly to municipal, local, couple of county offices. Um, are there other uh, progressive alternative parties besides the Green Party and Socialist Alternative and the Vermont Progressive Party that you think we ought to be aware of and tracking? Well, you know, there are quasi parties that, uh, for example, there's Progressive Dane in Madison, Wisconsin, but to a large extent, they endorse Democrats. They have some nonpartisan um, uh, elected officials and actually a couple of Greens. Uh, so, you know, there's something to be aware of, although whether or not they're a third party is sort of debatable. The more they move away from endorsing Democrats, the more that could be possible. There's the Peace and Freedom Party in California. I'm sure you're aware of that. Um, although I don't know that they're on a trajectory to actually gain power. Um, I... I'm not aware of that. Um, there was a quasi third party in the, uh, the Seattle area, the People's Party. They 
actually um, came close to electing a mayor uh, a couple of years ago. And so, uh, but these things sort of rise and fall. And there are a number of groups that have been trying to establish third parties in the wake of the Sanders campaign, um, largely composed of burners, supporters of Bernie Sanders. Um, they haven't really gotten very far. I, I guess you could see this effort that I'm involved with, the Progressive Party Organizing Fund, which is an emerging PAC, as being uh, part of that uh, trend. Uh, but I believe it's more serious and has a lot more potential than any of uh, the other groups. So I'm going to hold that because I want to really dig deep. But before I do, uh, Yamo has written in uh, as a big fan of Eugene Debs' achievements as a third-party socialist candidate in the United States. And I'd love for you, as an academic of repute who studies this, uh, to share your opinion on what lessons to be learned from Eugene Debs. Well, as I recall, he got close to 6% of the vote. Eventually, he went to jail while he was still a candidate, which is kind of impressive, uh, running from prison. But, um, you know, he, he was well known. And there's actually a chapter in the book, Empowering Progressive Third Parties, that looks at different left third party candidates who've run for president and uh, makes some observations about which ones do better and why. And Debs, uh, being as well-known as he was, I think that really enhanced his performance at the time, uh, enhanced his influence and the influence of the Socialist Party on subsequent policies. Um, and uh, we, well, after that, of course, uh, Robert LaFollette, the Progressive Party, uh, got, I believe it was somewhere around 16%. If, if uh, uh, I, I might be a little off there, but... Um, in any case, uh, you know, Debs wasn't the only one to do to do that well, but he was the first one to uh, demonstrate that it was possible and to show that just with a small percentage of the vote, you could have an outsized influence. However, it seems to me that there's a difference between gaining 6% and having some influence on policy and stimulating organization of your party at the local level and the state level and getting a tiny percentage of the vote, like less than 1%, which is not unusual nowadays uh, for third-party candidates. Uh, if you do that, I think that you have much less influence. And so I think it's important to be mindful of what it takes uh, to do better. Run someone who's well-known, have a strong organization, and be relatively well-funded are the three things that can really make a difference. Obviously, a third party is not going to be nearly as well-funded as the major parties, but the better they can do in terms of funding and those other elements, uh, the better. You know, I'll just point out that 6% today would win U.S. public presidential campaign funding, uh, at least uh, as long as the corporate Democrats don't get their way and pass uh, H.R. 1 without a significant amendment. That would be phenomenal. Jonathan, I do want to circle back because, you know, when you talk about the things that, uh, that any third party ought to be doing, uh, I want to ask you if you have any thoughts about what progressive third parties should be doing between elections to build their base, uh, to build skill set, and to be preparing uh, not only to run in off run for office, but also to be preparing to govern effectively. Yeah, well, it's important to be well versed in the issues to have connections to local movements that uh, that are working on those issues. Um, 
But in terms of recruiting candidates, I think it's really important to get started very early um, so that uh, you develop a very clear and persuasive agenda. Um, and so I know that sometimes um, strategists or activists uh, in progressive third parties can kind of counterpose movement building to electoralism, but I don't think those two should necessarily be separate. Um, I, I, I like to think of them as being integrated. Uh, if you are involved in local movements in your local community uh, in ways that are perceived as effective, your organization and your candidates are going to be a lot more popular and will do much better. You know, John and I thank you for that because I've often said that it is a false dichotomy to talk about movement work and electoral work as if uh, they are polar opposites. They properly, as you say, should be integrated. Uh, and they, if we did it well, we would actually be seamless and we would actually use electoralism as a way to build our movements and then use our movements to be more effective in our electoral strategy. In other words, it shouldn't be either or, it should be both and leveraging off of one another. Yeah, I should mention that Shama Sawan of Socialist Alternative in Seattle, who I mentioned earlier, came out of the Occupy movement. And so that provided her with some kind of a base, first to run for state representative and make a slight name for herself and then run for city council and win. So, yes, it can be important to be involved in local movements uh, in between elections or before you run for office. Having said that, I think it's important to note that that's not always enough. I personally, uh, I found through my research that if you're running for local office or um, lower level state offices like state representative, it really helps to have a solid connection to your community, to be socially similar to most people in your community or to have been involved in activities over years that uh, bring you into close contact uh, with many people uh, where you live. Uh, I, there are plenty of people who run for office who don't have that and they don't do so well. And I feel like that's a, a prerequisite, at least that's what my research found and that's described in uh, my book uh, that allows you to be competitive. Doesn't mean you'll win, but if you don't have that, your chances of, of winning are really uh, poor. Folks, you're watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb. We're speaking with Professor Jonathan Martin, who is a professor of sociology at Framingham State University in Massachusetts. He is the editor of and contributor to Empowering Progressive Third Parties in the United States. He also manages the Facebook page titled Empowering Progressive Parties, Third Parties in the United States, where you can continue this sort of conversation. You know, Jonathan, one thing that I want to really underscore and just name is it's one thing to be connected to individuals, constituency, and communities, clearly critical and important. But a lot of the so-called movement organizations uh, are actually front groups for the Democratic Party and tend to either exclude Greens or erase our contributions uh, when election time comes around. Do you think I'm being fair when I make that uh, assessment and draw that conclusion, or am I being paranoid? No, I think you're being fair. There's plenty of evidence of that. Um, and by the way, I wouldn't say that it's a prerequisite uh, that those who want to build a third party uh, be involved in movements first and 
uh, create or strengthen movement organizations. I think sometimes it can work the other way around where candidates can help stimulate movements. I believe Shama Swan, who we mentioned before, did that. Gail McLaughlin, uh, to some extent, the Vermont Progressive Party has done that. And so I do think there's a dialectical complex relationship between movements and third parties. Um, but I don't think it's necessary to wait uh, to party build uh, to, to get involved in movements first. I don't think that is essential. So, Jonathan, Victor Tiffany was one of the founders of the Bernie or Bust movement back in 2016. He's watching and writes in to ask, do you believe that Bernie or Bust will help build the Green Party again in 2020? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, it helped build it to some extent in 2016. Um, I remember going to a Jill Stein rally and half of the people there raised their hands saying that they had been involved in the Bernie campaign and they were uh, involved in a green activity for the first time. Later, I heard here in Massachusetts that a lot of people who joined the Green Party uh, who had been involved in the Sanders campaign, uh, they felt some kind of frustration, they felt alienated, and eventually they dropped out. So I think the Green Party would have to be ready in a way that it wasn't before. Um, And I don't even know if that's enough. I think there's sort of a difference in culture between burners and greens uh, that can be somewhat of a problem. Um, I can go on if you like. I mean, I think it's it's worth talking about. I know that the Bernie or Bus movement was tremendous uh, for the dim exit. Uh, I I also experienced that there was some level of green entry. Uh, people like uh, Rodolfo Cortez, Kenneth Mejia, uh, 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 Yamo uh, Rydberg, who we heard from other earlier, were uh, active. Burners who not only entered the Green Party but became uh, real leaders, uh, and some stayed, but many left. I'm wondering uh, what we in the Green Party could be doing differently uh, to either be more welcoming or to create a culture where people want to stay. Well, I think the Green Party would be more effective in attracting uh, people from the Sanders campaign and independent progressives in general if it more oriented towards winning. Uh, The Green Party does run candidates at the local level and it does win, but uh, win some of those races, but it also runs quite a few higher level races where the candidate performs poorly. And I think that reinforces the image that the Green Party can't win. Now, burners tend to be more pragmatic in their orientation, trying to get Bernie elected uh, a candidate who actually does have a shot of getting elected, let's say, if not for the corruption of the Democratic Party. But um, I would speculate that when they enter the Green Party, they find a very different culture of um, activists who are not quite as concerned about doing well electorally. And so if the Green Party were to focus more on races where it had a stronger chance of winning or at least doing a good showing. I mean, local level races where the obstacles are a lot weaker. Um, And it's possible to recruit candidates who are well-rooted in their community and have some kind of a base and don't need a a ton of money in order to uh, be viable, then uh, they'd be a lot more likely, in my view, to be able to attract uh, new supporters. You know, uh, I do also want to say uh, Dylan uh, in the audience is calling for the Green Party to endorse 
Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. So I'm going to just take this opportunity to explain the structural reasons why the Green Party actually has to run our own candidate for president. First and foremost uh, are ballot access requirements. There are Remember that there are 50 different uh, laws that govern party formation, election codes, and ballot access. Many of those states actually require us uh, to have a certain percentage, uh, usually one or two percent in a presidential race in order to maintain ballot access. In addition to that, we have found, and history, I believe, will uh, show us that if you don't run a presidential candidate of your own, you are effectively uh, admitting defeat and no longer a relevant player as an alternative uh, political party. Uh, the third reason is because the Green Party has a core program and platform based on our four pillars of uh, peace, justice, democracy, and ecology. And as good as Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren may be on some issues, and on some issues they are in fact very good, uh, none of them actually have the kind of systemic transformational program to end imperialism, to dismantle white supremacy, uh, to create a genuine economic democracy and take on an eco-socialism program and not just critique capitalism, but actually call for a restructuring of society. So Dylan, I appreciate uh, that you and many others would like to see the Green Party endorse Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but for any number of reasons, I can tell you it just can't happen, and I personally don't believe it should happen. But I'm going to give you a chance, Jonathan, uh, to make the counter argument if you believe. And so I'll just ask you outright, do you believe the Green Party should be in the business of endorsing uh, other uh, parties? No, I don't think so. I think that compromises the integrity of a progressive third party to start endorsing uh, candidates from the Democratic Party, so I wouldn't favor that. Um, however, just to comment on something else you were saying, I wouldn't say that I am opposed to running higher-level candidates at times, but I think it is important to be selective about it, because when it comes to ballot access, you can get into what I would call a ballot access treadmill, meaning that you run higher-level candidates in order to gain ballot access and then you don't make use of that running candidates on the ballot who actually can win or make a good showing. And so you have to feel like you have to keep running more candidates to maintain that access. And what's the point of that? Yeah, now, I mean, I often say that the, the, the like structurally, there are so many barriers uh, to Green Party uh, success. You know, the, 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 the system is not just str structured to prevent our success, Jonathan, this system is literally designed to prevent the existence of a genuine progressive alternative political voice. Um, you know, I do want to circle back and give you a chance to talk a little bit more about the Progressive Politics Organizing Fund and at, to ask you this very specific question that Michael has posed, and that is, would this PAC be willing to financially support local efforts to implement fair representation voting systems like ranked choice voting, single transferable vote, or other proportional representation systems. Okay, before I answer that, I just want to say something about what you were talking about before, which is to emphasize that even though there are various strong external structural obstacles to 
third-party success. Um, there are a lot of opportunities at the local level. I mean, at the level of state uh, state legislature, 40% of state legislative races have only one major party opponent running unopposed. And so people tend to think, well, you know, third parties can't get ahead because there's always this spoiler problem. Well, there's no spoiler problem in these many races where there's only one major party candidate running. And those are the kind of races that a third party should really be prioritizing. I'm not sure that people know that. Not only that, the media doesn't cover, to a large extent, doesn't cover local races. In many places, it doesn't take a huge amount of money uh, to be competitive. And uh, at the local level, you don't need state ballot access. Um, you can run as a nonpartisan candidate and just get on the ballot with a small number of signatures, uh, but heavily identify with your party such that people do see you as a member of that party. So I'm just saying that recognizing that there are these big structural obstacles shouldn't prevent people from focusing at the level where those obstacles are weak at the local level and winning. And winning at that level is really important because it challenges what I think of as the biggest obstacle to third party and progressive third party success, which is the widespread belief that they cannot win. That is, I, I believe, far and above more influential than any of those other obstacles we talked about. If people started to think that these parties had the potential to win, uh, I, I feel that there, there would be a flood of support in their direction. Right now, uh, roughly 60% of the public wants a third major party. Uh, large majorities of the public support progressive policies. And so the base is there, but people just don't think that these parties can win. And that has to be demonstrated. And the best way to do that is to, to demonstrate it at a level where, where it is a lot more possible at the local level. And so, again, I'm not against running higher level candidates selectively for, for ballot access, but preferably uh, not candidates that suck a lot of energy and resources uh, away from a third party. At times, it can be useful for getting across a message or pushing the major parties to the left, one of them anyway. Uh, but uh, let's not forget that there are plenty of opportunities out there for those who are willing to work from the bottom up. Thank you for that and uh, for that exhortation. I do want to circle back and ask you, do you think that the Progressive Organizing Fund would be willing to financially support local efforts for ranked choice voting and single transferable vote? Well, right now, what the Progressive Party Organizing Fund, and it's just in the process of being established, I should say, um, intends to do is to support local committees that will develop into parties and viable candidates at the local level that can help uh, build parties and hopefully run and uh, make a good showing or win. And so this fund is not oriented towards supporting movements per se. Now, it might be allied with those movements or at least be sympathetic to them, but its main goal is to uh, build local and state committees uh, that can become essentially local chapters of, um, of a new progressive party. Fair enough. I guess one thing that I would encourage you, Jonathan, and that fund and everybody watching and listening is to recognize that the voting system is what creates the so-called two-party system. The belief that third parties can't win has been ingrained uh, in folks. Uh, and I, I honestly believe any progressive party is going to face the same challenges that the Green Party faces. Ultimately, 
I believe we're going to have to change and force a change in the voting system in order to actually break the grip of the so-called uh, two-party system. Uh, I do want to make sure to get to Beatty because we're running out of time. I want to catch a couple of these other comments uh, and thank everybody for coming in. Remember, you are watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb. Remember, we're talking to Jonathan Martin, who is a professor of sociology and the editor of and contributor to Empowering Progressive Third Parties in the United States. Please make sure to share this uh, on your own page or any page that you mention. Beatty writes in to ask or say, with the DNC primaries in the news refusing to have a climate change debate, I've been fantasizing that the Green Party might be able to find a host for a Green Party primary debate. We know that that happened on RT America. I'm wondering, Jonathan, if you think that there may be the space uh, for a Green Party primary debate. We know that uh, Dario Hunter, Howie Hawkins, Ian Schlackman, uh, SKCM, there are several folks who are seeking the Green Party's nomination. What do you think about that? Could, could you imagine... Uh, a uh, some entity hosting a Green Party primary debate that's beyond the Green Party? Well, I don't know what that entity would be. Um, it could be beneficial for the party, but again, you know, I'd say that uh, it's important to consider how many people would be watching that debate and would the venue be such that you would actually get a significant audience. If not, it could be constructive on a small scale, but I don't think it would necessarily have the large impact that uh, that you're looking for. So thanks for that. Somebody else wrote in uh, to say, "Look, uh, you, the idea of what y'all are uh, what you're talking about, uh, the tiny offices in tiny towns are where we have the fewest number of greens, and that's a function of population density, or really the lack thereof, right? Uh, so how would that strategy work in practice?" Are you recommending that Greens go into the exurbs and either permanently or longer term? Uh, we're not saying that's an absurd prospect, but that would be a huge, significant and strategic commitment. So what does that look like in practice? In terms of running for local office? Yes, especially uh, in those places in the tiny towns where we have very few Greens. Uh, I mean, temporarily or the long term. Well, uh, you know, I remember working for a candidate in another town um, next to mine, and it's possible to recruit people from other uh, towns to be part of your campaign committee, as long as they're not too far away. Um, there may be people, we talked about movements uh, in your town who are sympathetic to what you represent and see that there are no other candidates who represent it and you could recruit them to your campaign committee. So a campaign itself can start to attract local people who are sympathetic and eventually um, help to create a chapter. So uh, Yamo writes back in to, uh, to ask, look, capitalism is the problem. Why organize progressive instead of socialist? That is a great question. I can tell you that uh, you know, plenty of socialists in the early 1900s were originally populists and were fighting for progressive reforms. A struggle ensued. Uh, they were repressed by the powers that be and they were converted into socialists. And so if you want socialism, and that's a legitimate goal, uh, appealing to people on the basis of um, 
progressive policies, things that they already support, reforms within the system, having them fight for them, they might be able to achieve some of them. Chances are, without a change of the system, they won't be able to achieve a lot of it. And a, a struggle will ensue that will enlighten them to the need to challenge the structure. And so I do think that there is a interesting dynamic between progressive populism and socialism where um, the former can build on the latter. Socialism can actually be strengthened by progressive populist movements. I don't think that they are mutually exclusive. Jonathan, we're, we're, the time is just flying by. It's a great conversation. I do want to ask this pointed question. What do you think Greens should be doing that you don't see us doing? Or what should we be doing differently? All right. I think I've already mentioned one of those things, which is focusing more on races where you have the potential to win or make a, a good showing in order to convince people that you are viable, which is the most important thing that a progressive third party like the Green Party can do. Try to recruit candidates who have a strong re reputation in their community. If possible, they'll do a lot better. Uh, there's been some discussion in the Green Party about creating a dues-paying membership. That could be important for raising the funds to build a stronger organization and indirectly support candidates. So those are three things that come to mind. Uh, can I interrupt you before you go forward yes. to say breaking news? It looks like the Green Party of California's coordinating committee has approved and authorized uh, a proposal to go to our full standing General Assembly to become a dues paying organization. I know that New York State is one. So is the state of Georgia. But if California does it, we will be the, the largest state Green Party uh, to move in that direction. Well, that's a good thing. That's that's uh, that is good news. I was going to say that um, one thing that I think it's important for any Green to consider is what are the chances of moving the party in a direction that will make it more effective and doing some of the things that I suggested. Is the party open to that reform, th those kind of reforms? Does it have the kind of culture that is open to those reforms? Uh, is the leadership and much of the membership open to that? Now, I'm not currently active in the Green Party, even though I'm still sympathetic to it, and I, I you know, support green candidacies. Um, it's likely that I'll vote green for president again. <laughs> but uh, I came to the conclusion that much of the leadership and some of the membership was resistant to creating a more pragmatic party oriented towards winning. And that's why I started moving in the direction that I did in terms of trying to create um, – an organization like the Progressive Party Organizing Fund, uh, a PAC, to lay the foundation for something new, a different party, not to compete with the Green Party, but to have a more pragmatic uh, approach that potentially could uh, build a bigger base, attract more people. Um, so I personally think that it's fine to have different progressive third parties experimenting with different strategies and let's see what works and then go in the direction of what does. So it's not meant to compete with the Green Party, but I think it is an alternative that um, is worthwhile. And um, I should also say that for, for others who might be interested in this, go to the website ppof.us to learn more about that effort. That's ppof.us. I'm going to check that out myself, and I'm going to also... Uh, again, very respectfully challenge you, uh, Jonathan, and folks at PPOF uh, to really take seriously voting system reform, uh, because otherwise I just don't see a way to break this two-party 
monopoly uh, unless we actually change that voting system. Uh, Jonathan, the time has just flown by. I do want to give you an opportunity for any final concluding thoughts. Well, I just want to say uh, in response to what you just said, that I support those kind of structural electoral reforms. I think they're important, but at the same time, I don't think we have to wait for them to make the kind of breakthroughs that will inspire people and help create the kind of critical mass that we need to build a viable progressive party, whether it's the Green Party or the kind of progressive party that the PPOF is trying to build or some other third party. Uh, we can do both. That's fantastic. And I'm also going to open up the space. Uh, Michael O'Neill, I know you've been working hard uh with the technical directing and also reading the comments. So is there any, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience? You know, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about the presidential primary that we're in the throes of. And I look forward to unpacking a lot of these uh, myths and beliefs that people have as we move forward through this year and into the next. Well, Jonathan, this was really a fantastic conversation. I'm going to uh, let you know, I'm going to make sure to uh, invite you back on because I think that uh, we need the kind of constructive critique uh, that you've been offering, uh, the kind of uh, comradely discourse. Uh, you know, we need people not just to be to join the Green Party and be of the Green Party, but we also need people who are generally sympathetic to and supportive of the Green Party. And there are far too few academics like yourself doing that work. Uh, so I want to thank you again for joining I want to thank you, Michael O'Neill, for the work that you do to make this program happen. Again, a shout out to Michael and Gloria for some excellent work uh, at Left Forum. And finally, I want to conclude by thanking you, the viewer listener of A Green Way Forward. Uh, remember, we're getting larger, stronger, and better organized every day. And with a hat tip to Gil Scott Heron, the revolution may not be televised, but it can be brought to you over the sources of non-corporately filtered news, information, and analysis like a green way forward. So please share this on your own Facebook page, share it by podcast. If that's how you're listening to us, go to the website, agreenwayforward.org and sign up so we can continue to build this audience. Peace. A Green Way Forward is broadcast live on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time from Dr. Jill Stein's Facebook page. Subscribe to our podcast and e-newsletter at agreenwayforward.org to make sure that you never miss an episode. You can also find us and rate us on iTunes, with more podcast platforms being added each week. Our theme music is Retro Future Dirty by Kevin McLeod, whose fine music can be found at incomptech.com and is available for use under a Creative Commons attribution license. This is Michael O'Neill for David Cobb reminding you to please spread the word about A Green Way Forward and to send us your thoughtful questions and comments to agreenwayforward at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.